Hello, this is episode 266 and in it, I am so, so, so looking forward to bringing you my amazing guest, Yoast Backer. Now, in this and the next episode, Yoast generally shares with us his zero waste approach to his projects and work, and in particular, his latest project, Future Food System. So Future Food System, it was built as a temporary home in Melbourne's Federation Square with the goal of reimagining the home as an ecosystem that provides shelter, energy and nourishment for its inhabitants. And as with all well-functioning ecosystems, Future Food System was fully self-sufficient. It produced its own energy, water and food, and it managed, recycled and utilised its own waste, all within an urban environment on a very compact and well-designed two-bedroom, 89-square-metre footprint. Now, Yoast shared the journey of construction really openly. And then once the building was completed, chefs Matt Stone and Joe Barrett actually lived on site. And then once COVID restrictions eased, they held tours and they served meals uh, to guests in an intimate setting. Now, the project was an amazing demonstration of what is possible in residential living and lifestyle with the future food system approach. And I can't wait to share this conversation with you. It was a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a long time with Yoast. So it was so awesome to be able to speak with him. And you'll hear more about his work, about his philosophies and his views, and also his incredible wealth of knowledge about how we can build and live differently. That's really been established over decades of creativity, research, experimentation, testing, and validation. Now, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information on the resources that we discuss, I've also got, inf- they've got extra videos there, links and photos, lots of resources you can refer to. You can grab all of that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 266. That's the numbers 266. Now, let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers, and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses, and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building, and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com 
forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. So before we jump into the conversation, if you aren't familiar with Yoast and his work, I'm going to share some background information with you about Yoast Backer. So he's known as the zero waste kid in the New York Times. And I've heard Yoast actually describe himself personally as a florist and an artist. And in fact, that's where his career began. Yoast was born in Holland and he emigrated to Australia with his family when he was nine years old. His father was a fourth generation tulip farmer. And so Yoast's childhood was spent in, around and of nature as his family settled in Monbolk about about 45 minutes east of Melbourne, near the Dandenong Ranges. Yost started his own floristry business in the 1990s and he quickly became known for his artistry with unexpected objects, plants and flowers. And to this day, he still does incredible installations for renowned restaurants and events such as the David Jones Spring Flower Show in October 2022. However, it's not floristry that many know him for and it's definitely what I what it's not what I first found out about Yost and his work from. So Yost is also described as a restaurateur, a builder, an innovator, a visionary, a disruptor, an eco warrior and an environmental activist and his work over his 25 plus year career extends to other projects such as his own home and other residential projects and his award-winning pop-up waste-free greenhouse restaurants and silo cafes in locations such as Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. Now most recently after five years of planning and as I said 25 plus years of testing Yoast actually brought another greenhouse to life known as Future Food System. So On its website, it's described as a self-sustaining, zero-waste, productive house that demonstrates the potential of our homes to provide shelter, produce food and generate energy. Built as a temporary project in Federation Square, Melbourne, this compact two-bedroom home across three floors in an 89-square-metre footprint, it explored the possibilities of creating a home where all materials are recyclable or biodegradable at the end of life and the home fully supported a waste-free lifestyle with all energy and food produced on site as well. Future Food System is now the subject of an award-winning documentary, The Greenhouse, and it also features in Zac Efron's Netflix series, Down to Earth, Down Under. I really encourage you to check it out and head to the resources for this episode. It has to be seen to be believed, okay? And there is actually a virtual tour on the website, which is uh, super handy to have a look through. Now, I have a graphic that's stuck on the notice board beside my desk. I cut it out of somewhere years and years ago. And it says, don't say no, say how. And for me, it's always been a really great motivator. Uh, and and I, I look at that on a regular basis. And when I, I saw that and then started, you know, obviously thinking about interviewing Yoast and having watched his work for a long, long time, many years now, and then also having now had the privilege of speaking with him in, and interviewing him, I feel like Yoast takes this saying of don't say no, say how even further. I feel like for Yoast, it's don't say no and don't say how. Let's just say yes and we'll figure the rest out. Who's with me? And through Future Food System, Yoast asks us to imagine solving the world's biggest problems simply by changing the way that we live. I really do hope that you enjoy learning more about Yoast and about how he and the other incredible people that were involved in bringing Future Food System to life, how they've explored and demonstrated what is actually possible when we rethink how we can create the spaces and places that we live in every day, those being our homes. Remember as well, I've got all the resources that you need, plus a PDF downloadable transcript of this episode at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 266. 
Well, Yost, I am so excited to have you on the podcast this morning I and have this conversation. I have followed your career for some time and then when Future Food Systems started being uh, built, I was following that closely. You might have actually, when we were chatting on Instagram, possibly seen the the messages that I'd sent prior to obviously us being able to set this up. I think there was a message from a year ago where I was trying to get in touch with you and you're a super, super busy man who's um, very much in demand. So I'm really uh, grateful for the time this morning and really looking forward to sharing your wisdom and your knowledge with the Undercover Architect community. I wanted to dive in first and ask you, I often talk to the Undercover Architect community about how many pathways there are to sustainability. You know, we talk about uh, low embodied energy, energy efficiency, uh, low tox, lots of different kind of ideas. Zero waste is obviously the thing that you're most passionate about. Why zero waste as the pathway to sustainability for you and, and what you've chosen to pursue in your life's work? Well, it's really just mimicking nature. Nature is a zero-waste system, and, and I think that, that we should use nature as our guide. And I just think it's bizarre that we generate waste. We don't need to generate waste. I mean, if in nature, everything that we, that, you know, a tree that dies becomes a food source for a, a whole bunch of new life. And if we view materials the same way, then you know, we would probably stop contaminating materials and, and impregnating concrete with styrofoam. And, you know, if we actually viewed materials like concrete's a perfectly, uh, it's a brilliant material to recycle. It's an easy material to recycle, but somehow, in the, especially in the last 10 years, we've worked out all these ways to contaminate the materials and now it can't be recycled, you know? So my approach has always been start, start at the end and work your way back to the beginning. And if you start at the end, you can design waste out completely. When I watched the Greenhouse documentary, it was amazing to see that philosophy so much in play and, and just what was possible then in terms of how that whittled down your choices around things. I'm really curious you, you know, you obviously, I, I, when I somebody heard somebody ask you actually at the Q&A after the the, video, the movie session that I went to, um, you described yourself as a florist. I've heard you describe yourself as an artist. You've also been described as an activist, an inventor. I'm curious why buildings, because you, I think you've probably built and designed more buildings than some architects and builders out there in the amount of work that you've done. Why buildings as a pathway to exploring and experimenting with this concept of zero waste and how zero waste can be demonstrated in built form? Well, I mean, it really just started with this house that I'm in, you know, in, in, I wanted to build a family home, uh, for my, to, to raise my family that was natural and non-toxic and, and just a nice place to be in. And so, yeah, this is where it started. And, and a lot of, um, I had, uh, at the time, a lot of help from Nanda Katsalidis, who was a friend and, and, um, gave me lots of advice. And we went and, and to Dalesford too. And I mean, I wasn't an architect. I just knew what I wanted. You know, I knew I wanted to build a certain way. I knew I wanted to use straw. We, when we migrated from Holland, I was nine and my dad worked out that obviously this is a very hot place. So in Holland, we use straw to insulate tulip bulbs from the frost. And my dad decided to use straw to insulate the freezer bulbs from the heat to get an earlier crop. And I remember, you know, this huge truck of straw arriving on our farm and at the handwritten info invoice, and it was like $300 back wow. in 93 or something. And I remember thinking, how can this whole truck be 300? It was like a dollar a bale or something like that, you know? 
So I remember it being obviously really cheap, but then we had New Year's Eve and we were all sitting on straw bales and it was very cold and we were warm, you know, because it was like having a warm seat. So I just understood that it insulated well. I understood that it was cheap and I understood that it broke down, of course, you know, um, eventually the straw was gone. It became carbon in the soil. And so they always had a fascination with that, but I did, didn't did like, um, you know, we've got termites here. I didn't like the idea of, of uh, timber frames. I was already back then really wet, really obsessed the idea of to stop using trees for architecture because I knew how, what I was, my big passion was nature and saving forests. And back then, you know, we were losing, well, I know it's faster today, but we were losing so many forests because of our obsession and appetite for timber. So I wanted steel frame. I wanted to use straw. And so, yeah, Nodda and and I, we stayed the night in Dalesford and we visited this architect and uh, he was famous for designing straw bale houses and i said look this is my design this is this is what i want to build and he just looked at me and he said you can't do this (laughs) i wanted i wanted to put straw in the ceiling because i said well what's the point having it in the wall like most of your energy is lost through the ceiling and uh he just said no no, it can't can't be done and i had an idea for doing a waffle slab with straw and he just looked at me and like i think it was over in 15 minutes we just stood outside of this and nonda just said to me Yos, you've got to do this yourself. You're not going to find anyone. And then we actually stayed that night in a straw bale house as well, in an Airbnb, well, before Airbnb existed. but And um, it smelt. Just had that, um, you know, moist, like it just didn't smell. And my wife is like, I don't want to live in a place like this, you know. So first thing the architect recommended was that I needed to have three-meter ceiling. I'm tall. I, I love the idea of three-meter ceilings. I think it's really nice to be in a, a, a space with a high ceiling so well you need three meter eaves everywhere because the walls can't get wet and i'm going no but the way i want to do it it doesn't matter right so we i just from that moment on thought well i've gotten on the cats telling me i should just do it myself you know <laughs> that's pretty pretty cool that's so a good endorsement I, isn't it <laughs> yeah he just gave me the confidence i think to 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 um, he could see that I could easily do this myself. I couldn't, I didn't believe in myself at the time, but you know, he gave me, I suppose, that confidence. Then we struggled to get builders. So then I just ended up building it myself. And it, the result was that, you know, Earl Carter is a good friend of mine, an amazing photographer shot it. And then it got on the cover of Vogue, the cover of interior design magazine in the United States in L and the U in Italy. And suddenly all these people are saying, oh, you're an architect or you're a builder. No, this is just my family home. And uh, it was Rob Adams, Professor Rob Adams, who was also a friend at the City of Melbourne. He used to come to my exhibitions. Uh, once a year, I'd have an exhibition of my art. And um, he said, why don't you build a prototype of your house at Federation Square? And that's how it started. So it was really just wanting to build an, a natural, you know, well-insulated home that was non-toxic for my family that's how it started that's amazing from such i mean fairly humble beginnings this great big kind of movement around how much built work you have been able to do and how much you've been able to demonstrate uh these different applications future food system obviously uh, you know as another pop-up in fed square was quite a different beast architecturally from the home your own home and from the other buildings that you've created 
in terms of the materiality and uh, the construction and even the form, you know, being being something that's sort of terraced and sat on top of each other um, in a very small footprint. What learnings did you take from the buildings that you'd been doing into Future Food System and in terms of what you wanted to explore that was similar versus what you wanted to do differently? Because, you know, before we jumped on, you talked about how important the experimentation process is for you personally and professionally in in and providing yourself with these opportunities to test things. So, you know, future food system and, and how it represented what what was sort of the, the learnings that, that you were trying to apply in that and the differences that you were, were you, you were exploring. Well it's really important to know that the greenhouse in 2008, I was trying to do future food system back in 2008, but we also made it into a restaurant and and event space. So no one really looked at the greenhouse in 2008 as an alternative you know, way of housing, even though the footprint was identical to the average Australian sized home. I think wow. it was, yeah, I made it, you know, it was all for me about like making people see. And then 2009, I did another greenhouse in Perth. 2011, I did one in, in Sydney. And, and in 2012, I became really frustrated that my hospitality ideas weren't really being taken up by the industry and I came to the conclusion that it was just because there was too much going on people walked into the greenhouse you know the floor was made from conveyor belts from the mines the you know the writing on the walls the embedded biochar in the walls and you know we were grinding wheat and we were you know we had dimensions of wine and you know and I, I look back now and go it, it was way too much for people to take people were inspired and and you know raving about it but it didn't ultimately make any have any impact on on how the the industry behaved and so i came up with the idea of opening a cafe that looked like any other cafe and that was silo so i wanted people to walk in and not know that it was any different to any other cafe silo won best cafe in melbourne which is a big big it's it's huge but it had no bin and that revolutionized the whole industry like globally like we had i still get messages from berlin and sao paulo and you know new york saying oh it's still from 10 years ago because it proved and because the kitchen you sat in the kitchen there was nowhere to hide so everyone could see what we were doing everyone could see you know the materials that we used and it was really really raw but it was really it just made such an impact and so that's why i decided for the last greenhouse that i've done to make it look like a house and not do anything different. It wasn't a restaurant. It wasn't a bar. It wasn't a cafe. It was a house. So that it, and, and it's almost had the same impact as silo that people have suddenly gone, Oh, okay. Yeah. That I can see myself. It's a two bedroom house. You know, I can see myself living in a place like that. So that was, that was kind of explaining why I did that to try and sort of emulate the success of silo. And, the other thing I try to do, so each I'm obsessed with steel frame because I think steel is incredibly strong. It's termite resistant. It's, you know, lasts, you know, forever and can be forever recycled. So it's easy. It's always, it's always recycled because even if you put your steel into a, a landfill bin, it'll still get recovered by the magnets, you know. So it's an amazing material from that point of view. And so all my buildings up until that point in time had been light gauge steel, except for this one, my first one. So this is um, uh, steel frame, mild steel frame, and I actually designed a T-Perlin. Uh, there's lots of greenhouses 
in my area where we grow flowers and fruit and veggies. And, and so Greg, who makes greenhouses, actually folded the gutter for me or folds the gutters for the greenhouses. We ultimately engineered and designed a T-Perlin that where the straw bale locked into and then we could screw the plywood or plaster, whatever you want to screw to it. So I wanted to explore with Future Food System the idea of a modular building and try and get the, try and get the largest footprint on one truck. So the largest frame with, with, without um, getting additional permits. So we, we maxed out at four meters. So the, the, the largest module was four meters wide. The bedroom module was 3.6 and the stair modules. So they all nest within each other. So as the truck would arrive, you know, the, they can basically just all concertina out. And that was kind of the thinking. It's ironic now, though, with this flat pack system that I've gone back to almost this concept. And I'm actually, I've got a prototype of my garage sitting outside. Um, which, you know, is now, and I've just received approval from my mum's house, which I'll be using the flat pack idea on. And it's a hundred square meters. So we're going to try and get it up in, in a hundred hours. Awesome. Um, but it's back to this original idea, you know, so I've done all these, all these different, you know, I worked with Arup on Sydney greenhouse. We use like gauge steel. We roll form that building at circular key. We had the roll former there. Wow. And um, worked with Arup on, it was the lightest building uh, I think 12 ton of steel and it had the capacity to hold 60 ton of soil, 150 people on the roof. The whole building was made from one millimeter steel. And, uh, Ordinary. but I, I've ultimately ended up going back to a, a, a conventional welded trust as the, the sub, the main structure and all the substructures like edge steel. Right. Does that question? I can't even remember what your question yeah, was. Yeah, no, it does. And I think it's, um, I, I can see what is critical to your success is your in, in getting this to work is is your own personal desire to understand the machinations of how everything sort of fits together right from thinking about what its capacity is structurally how it can use the least amount of material how can you get the greatest efficiency out of the material through to then it being a material that you know can be uh, recycled or biodegradable at an at end of life and then you know those kind of conversations around transport and getting those things to um, I remember seeing uh, diagrams your Instagram account for future food system in the highlights is a fantastic exploration you've done you know you're sharing all of the pathway and there's actually a 3D modeling of the frame of future food system and showing how it all sort of went together and I think it's um it, it it leads me to ask, like when you, I mean, I heard you talk about in an interview that you'd had this idea of a house that could grow its own food from when you were about 12 years old. And you've obviously, you know, as you said, explored it in the restaurants um, and then bringing it into future food system as an actual sort of domestic dwelling idea. Uh, how, when you have this idea, there was beautiful image of you in the, in the greenhouse showing you sketching, you know, lovely sort of mind maps and, and, and block diagrams and that kind of stuff. But I'm curious when you're starting, where do you start? Do you start with thinking about the form? Do you start with thinking about, okay, I want to use this material this time, but I want to figure out how to do it this way. Like how, what's sort of the initiation for you? And then the, the pieces of the puzzle that sort of follow. At, at its core, my, the, you know, to be complete, to give complete clarity and be pure about the idea, it's that when we build, we take, take space, we take habitat, we take an opportunity of, from habitat of ever existing. And that, I think, is a real shame. So for me, green roofs are, you know, it would just be amazing if we, from today on, decided that every building on earth 
will have a green roof. Now, over the next 40 years, we will build two and a half billion homes. So we've got 2.3 currently. So we're going to more than double what gets built today. And for me, this is all about trying to make it economically viable to have a green roof because that's where it almost always fails. Like there's so the people are so nervous about this green roof, you know, leaking the weight, all these things, but the benefits are so massive. You know, you can't, which has just been a great study by um, Oxford university. Yeah. A, a 20 square meter green roof. And this is like, I'm talking like a sedum roof, which has got about, you know, that much soil is equivalent to taking the pollution of 20 cars annually off the road oh my gosh out of the atmosphere it locks up pollution like like i guarantee that the roof my roof design which has a lot lot more load and a much like i i have a lot more soil on my my roofs because i want it to be more like nature so you get more microflora more microbiology and so i think there's so many benefits to this that we just haven't worked out. You know, the heat island effect. It's. Uh, I remember the building the house in Dalesford, and and um, that was a 240 square meter building. We had a green roof on there, grass, da da da. da. And I remember I was working on the roof there, and, and Mitch, the owner, said, "Come down because there's a storm coming." And we were having a coffee, and this just rain event like I'd never seen before just you know bucketed down. And I thought, perfect, I can actually see if all the systems are working. And about half an hour later, I walked out when it stopped raining. There wasn't any water coming out of the downpipe. We had the, we had the downpipes embedded in the walls, but like at the exit, at the, at the end of the pipe, there was no water, not a drop. So I was like panicking. Oh, no. So I ran up, ran up onto the roof. We had like inspection pits wherever there was a downpipe going into wall. And there I could just slowly see, see the water trickling towards just what slowed happened. everything down. Hey, and then Mitch said like 10 days later, it was still dripping that pipe. Now, you know, it's like, to me, it makes so much sense when we've got all these stormwater issues, we've got all, we keep adding hard surfaces thinking that somehow we're going to solve this problem and, you know, habitat for bees, wildlife, birds, you know, the house in King Lake. I love Dan who lives there. He sends me photos some birds drop another seed and, you know, he said, did you plant this? You know, there's something spring. he doesn't know what it is. I didn't plant it, you know, like imagine if all of our houses were like that, you know, and then the potential for growing food and, and occupying those rooftops. And, you know, it just, to me, it just makes houses so much more insulative. It makes them bushfire resistant. You just, you, it's, it's going back to our original and very first and most primitive house, which is a cave. You know, it's it's so much more stable. And then you see, you know, when you think about like the devastation of bushfires, you see these rolled up bits of tin, you know, corrugated iron, black corrugated iron that, you know, bushfires just rip off these sheets of, like, how, how can we cover our homes with something that's paper thin? And yeah, it keeps us dry, but that's the only thing that it does. And so... So then you started, so with Future Food Systems, starting as that idea of claiming habitat and the green roof, um, obviously I suspect that Fed Square was only willing to give you a certain footprint, but you had ideas about how big you wanted that to be. Is that how, where the terracing of the forms came into play no. or how? 
that that um, eighty nine square meters is only because that's the maximum that I could get on a truck. Okay. So you know, it was like one truck um, delivery to site basically. So that's where. It, but also, yeah, it's it's a really nice size to work with. You know, the module size, two bedrooms. It just was a really nice, generous space. Like people felt really comfortable inside. It had high ceilings, so three meter ceilings, and um, yeah, even though the space was small, no one said, "Oh my god, this is too small for me to live in." It just the way that um, you know that idea of having the maximum solar surface. That's why it was terraced that way. So you know, I designed it around the sunrise and sunset and the winter sun, so that you could get the maximum growth and I think you could probably grow enough food for up to 10 people on a building like that because of the way it was designed. And obviously not everyone's going to be, have full sun. Um, you know, in, you might be, it might have a big tree nearby or neighbors or something like that. But in that position, we had really amazing, we're lucky to have an amazing uh, aspect. Yeah. It was incredible how productive it was. And I think too, the thing that really interested me was the conversation about the fact that it it was it didn't sit on concrete foundations and that the weight of the soil was taken into account with the structural stability and the holding down of the building. The building's obviously since been relocated and um and I believe you said at our QA that uh, the diggers have purchased it. Is that is yeah. that correct? Yep. So are they are they taking the same principle? I'm just curious about the obviously this was a temporary building, so I'm curious about what opportunity others might have to argue this with their own structural engineers about creating buildings that are held down because that's the thing like a, a roof garden's always uh, a lot of people want one but then when they start to have the conversation with their structural engineers about the addition it's going to mean to their structure in order to and what that's going to cost yet you flipped the the conversation on that to look at how it could actually could be used as an advantage for the structure of the building do you see any appetite for that to be something, you know, buildings without foundations and those kinds of things? It, it doesn't really ma matter whether the building's temporary or, or, or not. Like we had a full permit, building permit for that building, um, which, you know, it's interesting. Like when we move it, we don't need a building permit because we can use the same building permit as long as we don't modify the building. But the Sydney greenhouse, that was done that way. The first greenhouse at Fed Square was done that way. The Perth greenhouse was done that way. The um, last uh, 2012 greenhouse at Food and Wine Festival, you know, we had 60 tonnes of soil. That they just calculated this is how – and that was – that had shipping containers three, stacked three high for the kitchens and bars and stuff like that. So it was even more of a sale. So, yeah, look, I'm lucky. I've got a brilliant engineer, Tim Gibney, that, you know, he – He's just really practical and he's old school and just does the numbers and it, it's all about numbers for him. You know, if you can, it just makes sense. He said, this makes so much sense. Yeah, it's exciting because I think that it does give people an opportunity to, I think too, just having that voice with your consultant to explore those other alternatives when you do want to pursue something like this and know that it doesn't just have to be prescriptively built in a certain way and then the green roof be an addition. But, you you know, how do you actually unpack the process of these elements that you want to include so that they can be incorporated cleverly um, and and actually be an asset to the building um, rather than an addition. So um, going back to that original concept of you've got to start at the end and work your way back. And I think most people try and they design their house and then try and add a rooftop garden. For me, it's all about, no, let's work out how to, you know, I need a structural 
at every 4.8 meters, there needs to be some form of structure to hold that soil, you know? So if you want to have like a clear 10 meter span of glass, well then, you know, you'll have to design around that. You can't. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it, for me, it's like, that's my number one, that's my starting point. And then I work everything back from that. Can I talk to you about your material selection process? Because you obviously are looking for things that are recyclable at their end of life or biodegradable. Um, uh, and just unpacking what that actually looks like in your investigation process. So uh, I'm curious, do you have a big spreadsheet? Do people just come out of the woodwork when they hear Yosbaka is going to build a house and say, hey, I've got this? Do you, you know, do you, um, what's your criteria in your assessment process and how deep do you dig into the products? Because, you know, there's not a lot in the process of building a house that can necessarily satisfy those criteria, but there's new products and coming to the market all the time. So how do you go about that exercise of, of examining what you're going to use? Well, in the nineties, I was, you know, known as an artist using waste and, and I juxtapose waste, wasted materials, cables, um, you know, I, uh, whatever you can imagine I used in my art. And so I spent a lot of time in recycling yards and there was a guy called Rod Reed who had, you know, 20 acres of, it was like my paradise, this place. And I learned a lot from him. He, this is before we sent stuff to China. So uh, he would recycle electrical cables. And I remember there was a six meter shipping container of five meter long um, extension leads, brand new, but they didn't comply with Australian standards. They were brand new. So I, everyone says, why are you always hanging stuff with electrical cables? I got like literally a thousand you know, <laughs> extension leads, but if, but I wasn't allowed to use them. They, he said, you can use them for everything, but you can't. So people would always say, why are you hanging Brussels sprouts? Or why are you always using instead of, why don't you use cord? It's like, well, this stuff was all going to go to landfill. But I learned, you know, he would strip cables. He would, and certain cables had certain plastics that, got recycled and other cables would, they would burn them. It was crazy. And I really, mm. and how complex, how complicated we make. And then another friend, uh, Ward Peveridge, he recycles concrete and plasterboard. And, and then again, seeing all this plasterboard arrive that on a truck to be recycled. And then he sent it straight to landfill because it had all been glued. So it was an office fit out where they'd glued the plasterboard to the stud. And when you crush that plasterboard, all that toxic glue becomes embedded in the, in the, so you can't turn it back into plasterboard again. And then the same with concrete. I was there one day when, uh, you know, a row of trucks came in and these were quite modern houses that were being demolished for a road extension. And they were all built on waffle slabs and all those slabs, all that concrete had to get sent to landfill because the embedded styrofoam in the concrete he, the EPA wouldn't allow him to crush it for good reason because it becomes airborne and ends up in the wind. The wind takes it into the ocean and floats forever, you know, and wildlife pick it up as, you know, see this white glowing thing floating on top of the water, think it's an insect or food, so fish eat it and birds eat it. And so it really my approach is yeah, PVC is the same. Like I just remember understanding you know, I'm talking 95, 96, 97. So it's a long time ago. I remember understanding the differences in the plastics and, and the fire retardants that they would put in plastics, you know, to stop ca if cables would melt and stuff like that. So my obsession with, with not using PVC is not about um, anything other than it's really difficult to recycle and it's not recycled in Australia. And 
it wasn't until I did the Perth Greenhouse in 2009, we did that PVC free. It cost so much more and it delayed the project because we had to get a lot of it from Germany and Austria. Now you can go to Reese and basically build your house PVC free in 10 years. It's, and it's made here and it's completely recyclable. But there's some amazing work being done that shows that PVC is an endocrine disruptor. It, it affects our sperm count. It causes all this harm and it's toxic to the plumbers that work with it. So when they glue it together, you know, when you're gluing, anyone that's glued pipes together know that you, you're directly over the top of what it is that you're working because you want to make sure you've got a good tight junction. Well, that's the worst thing you can do because you're breathing in this toxic glue. So, you know, why, why is it okay for us to build a house that then ultimately ends up killing the person that's doing the plumbing for you because they get cancer from this stuff? Which is not, you know, there's literally thousands of studies that show that it's it's a carcinogen, it's a cancer-causing material. And then going back again to timber, like we were in a termite area, so a lot lot of the houses here need to be timber treated. The timber needs to be treated for termites. And again, going back to Ward, who recycles timber, that all goes to landfill. It actually has to be buried. It's classified as a hazardous material. Now. Anyone that's been on a building site, you know, chippies wear a tank top and a shorts. Usually they don't even wear a top. They're, they've got no gear on um, other than shorts and some boots and they're cutting this material. But if you look at like you should be wearing a full bodysuit when you're cutting that stuff up because it's so toxic. Why would you put that into your home? You know, it'll off gas forever. Um, Caesar stone. But yeah, so, you know, I, I suppose I just dig really deep and I go down these and, and end up, you know, meeting doctors and scientists. And then you find out that, you know, some science has been saying for 30 years, we need to stop using this and no one listens to them. And, um, and then they're often so surprised when I contact them because somebody for the first time is interested in the, in, in the harm that it does. And go, oh, yeah, no, we've been trying to get the building industry interested in to stop using this for like 30 years. I first did my first study 30 years ago showing how carcinogenic this material is. And you're the first person in 10 years that's contacted us, you know, and I find that just staggering. I, I, you know, silicosis that's happening through Caesar stone. At what point do I think, you know, it's harm, harmful to us and in our homes so why would we why would we want someone to get harmed by doing it by building that for us or by using it or by us building it ourselves so yeah and there's a lot of uh, materials that are uh, you know green building certified and and that whole like you, you know about fsc how i feel about that and so a lot of architects really struggle because you know I, but i i you know this is a recommended material it's like well hang on do a bit of research just because somebody's received the tick, often it's, you know, the people that pay the most money that get the ticks Don't, doesn't justify us using it. And I think what I love about the film, it shows when I'm standing in the middle of a monoculture forest that there's simply no sound. There's no insects, there's no birds, there's nothing. So why would we support an industry that is locking up literally hundreds of millions of acres annually with a single species monoculture that is destroying life on earth. Well, because it absorbs carbon, it's an insane idea. 
And we need to, we don't need to, imagine if the car industry said, oh, we're going to stop using steel and we're going to start using timber frames. And um, yeah, because it's carbon neutral. You know, first of all, there wouldn't be a tree left on earth. And secondly, what would the recycle, like okay, cars are almost completely recycled at the moment. They designed them to be recycled. So, you know, we need to just think about the circularity and about the consequences of all these ideas and decisions that we make. I actually wanted to talk with you about the timber because a couple of weeks ago, I got the chance to visit one of the, I think it's the largest sawmill in the Southern Hemisphere. And, um, and it was quite an interesting experience, quite confronting, actually. I, um, I, we, we had the benefit of being able to go as a group through the whole, um, the whole sawmill. And I was there at the invitation of the, the manufacturer. And uh, I remember standing at the beginning of the production line and, uh, you know, I saw the greenhouse documentary uh, uh, at the end of October. I've watched the interview that you did with Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture about your beliefs around FSC and agroforestry. And, you know, so I went to this sawmill and we were at the beginning of the line where you're looking out across acres of um, where they've dropped all the logs off, the pine logs, the radiator pine logs that have come from plantation forests. And I think there's a hundred plus truck movements in and out of this place every day. We were asked how long did we think all of that was going to take to process and the group sort of responded everywhere between a few days and a couple of weeks and we were told it was 18 hours and the, the volume that I was looking at across and I, and you know, within minutes, this uh, log gets dropped off and moved through the sawmill and is then examined by a computer to then determine what is the most value that we can mill out of that log. You know, it's comparing uh, sections that it can cut, it's examining knots, it's looking at all of those kinds of things. But as you know, 50% of the log goes to chip, sawdust, pine bark. It's only 50% that's actually ending up as solid wood products at the other end. I actually asked what could we use the chip for if it's not being used for paper because the the um the you know paper that that chip is going to the paper um production and it's the I think that's their largest customer. The sawmill, the sawdust was getting used to fire the mills. So it was going back into the system. But I had this moment where I looked out across these logs and I thought I was in my first year of university when those trees got planted, you know, and I think of the life that I've led since then. And I was like, I've specified this stuff my entire career and I we are not using timber on site like it's taken 30 years to grow that tree we're definitely not using it like it's creating monocultures that don't support any other you know um, wildlife or anything like that we're definitely not using paper like it's taken 30 years to grow that resource and I I'd, I'd been to the Durapanel factory um, the day before and just saw the difference of this waste product coming in the back and being turned into these these boards and so I was really curious because I think the agroforestry that um, I wanted you to just take a moment to explain agroforestry, how you used, uh, you know, the timber that you sourced at Future Food System. And what does that mean for the average homeowner? Because, you know, we walked out the other end and I saw how the volume at which we are producing this and they can't keep up, you know, they're still not meeting demand. And it, the volume, like it, I was just like, how do we, how do we do this in a better way that still helps everybody, uh, you know, build the homes that they want to and those kinds of things, and it not this not be the only pathway for people, and you know, not everybody obviously knows a farmer that they can go and get trees from. Like, how how do you sort of, yeah, if you can, I just wanted to unpack that a bit with you because I I was really, yeah, my mind just boggled when I left that sawmill, and yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was really interesting. 
Well, you, you know, it's really, I've been banging on about this for almost 20 years, but the, it was really interesting that Greta Thunberg did a post last year, might be two years ago now. And she said that Sweden in her lifetime, which was 17 years or 18 years at the time, had lost 34% of its wild biodiverse forest. And it was all replanted with monoculture forests. So we look to Sweden as a beacon of sustainable agroforest, uh, sustainable forestry, but it's it's not. You know, we need to we need to understand that we're dealing with a massive and very wealthy organised group of businesses here. FSC Watch is a really brilliant uh, that was started by one of the founders of FSC. FSC was started for the right reasons. There's no doubt about it to give us confidence in knowing, but it's been taken over by the logging companies and they're so reliant on funding from those companies that they basically control FSC. And um, controlled FSC is basically wild forests. You know, how, how can we, there's so many different labels. So people just look at the label, oh, it's FSC. They don't realize that it's a wild forest. So what has been happening in the last 20 years is we've been cutting down wild forest and replanting it with monoculture forest. And so we've looked, the loss of biodiversity is insane. And so I'm, I love timber. I'm not saying I don't, you, you know, I don't have sit at a steel table and, and I think timber needs to be used where, where we feel it and can touch it, our furniture the kitchen at the greenhouse. So there was a tree on uh, right, uh, on um, Andrew's farm in Ballarat and it had been hit by lightning. It was 130 years old, a macrocarpa, and it was he was concerned it was going to fall onto his mum's house. So we cut that tree, um, dried it and milled it, and that was the kitchen and the furniture at the house. So we actually cut it in July. The timber was dry enough by um, September, October, and then they made the kitchen from scratch. All of the carcass was made from sugar gum. The reason why, and again from Ballarat, the reason why we use sugar gum is because it's a, a tree that I love because it can be coppiced. So you never have to plant it again. You can just keep cutting it. So you plant it, let's say, in a place like Ballarat in Victoria. It would take about 20, 25 years to get a nice, decent 45, 50 centimeter log. You cut it and it only takes 15 years to get that log again because the root system, everything is intact, so it grows much faster. And so that was a hard class one timber that we used for the carcass of the kitchen and then everything that you saw was macrocarpa, including the chairs and the, and the tables and stuff like that. Agroforestry is – Australia is sitting on an, an unbelievable potential for a sustainable timber industry. The, 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 the amount of privately owned land that's unproductive in Australia is massive. So the average farm is about 4,000 acres and it's estimated that 20% of farmland is unproductive and, and suffering erosion. Along creeks, riverbeds, um, too steep, uh, whatever. There's a great example called Yan Yan Gert Farm in, uh, in Dean's Marsh where 650 acres, the Stewart family were the land was so unproductive they were all working off the farm 30 years ago they mapped the property because it'd been in the family for 100 years they knew where wildlife preferred to walk through so they created wildlife corridors and started on a 30-year plan over that 30 years they planted 55,000 trees 250 different species created wildlife corridors shelter belts every all the dams that were suffering erosion they fenced them off planted around them the dam, the quality of the water has is is like clear and and beautiful, and 
they've only used 15% of their land. And I think where we need to stop using timber is in the skeletons of our building because there's a much better option. It's steel. We can talk about the carbon emissions of steel. Yeah, that's, I'm happy to have that discussion. But we are losing so much carbon at the moment because we are destroying the lungs of the earth, like the Amazon, the forests in Russia, Canada, because of our architects believing and our building industry believing that it's sustainable. We are emitting a million times more carbon because we're not using steel, in my opinion. Once you lose an area like the Amazon, they don't have topsoil there. You can't re replant that. And so when I was there 20 years ago, going deep into the Amazon, our, our guide was a botanist because I'm obviously obsessed with plants and flowers. And I introduced myself and my name is Yost. He said, are you Dutch? I said, no, I'm Australian. And he said, I, I like Australians, but I don't like Australian plants. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the eucalypts will destroy the Amazon. And what he meant by that was that whenever the Amazon was cut down, they would be able to grow one or two crops, one crop at most, corn, maize, soybeans, whatever, and then there'd be no fertility left. Then they would graze it with animals, but there wasn't like the animals couldn't even be reproductive in that on that land. There's not enough nutrients for them to even reproduce, have offspring. So that would, on average, last seven years. Then the only thing that would grow is a eucalypt. So there's millions of hectares of eucalypts planted in Brazil and um, Peru because it's the only thing that will grow. And guess what happens? In the winter, in the wet season, every afternoon there's a lightning strike, lightning storm comes through. The lightning hits the Amazon, doesn't do anything because you've got all these high humidity plants. You've got this really dense, lush canopy. doesn't do anything, just goes out. But now for the first time in the history of the Amazon, we've got wildfires out of control because it hits these eucalypt forests. And, you know, the eucalypts on average are about between 12 and 15% uh, moisture content. They're not only draining the ground of, of moisture because they drink up to 15 times more water. So the ground is dry. There's all this dry bark and you're getting wildfires that have never happened there before. And this is a consequence of us wanting timber. I was in a factory in California only four months ago where they make doors, one of the America's largest door maker. All the timber came from the Amazon. They knew that it came from the Amazon. They said, we just can't source timber anywhere else. It's like, so now I've connected them with DuraPanel and they're now going to start making doors because they laminate the timber anyway. You don't even see this beautiful timber that's coming out of you. They were laminating them, connected them with DuraPanel and now DuraPanel is going to start sending compressed straw and now they're looking at um, starting to make it in California again. That's amazing. Now that's it for part one of my conversation with Yoast. Sorry to cut it off there, but I really do hope that you enjoyed what we shared so far and also that you'll tune in for part two. It was a really, I had, you know, Yoast was very generous with his time with me. So I, you know, it's a lot more that we discuss in part two that I want to bring to you in the next episode. Now, I also wanted to add some information um, in the outro here just about my trip to the sawmill that I discussed in this episode and my conversation with Yoast about agroforestry. Now, 
Now, I'll be really frank with you. I'm still arriving at all of my own thoughts and my my resolution regarding timber framing versus steel framing. Uh, I have largely worked with timber framing for most of my career um, and the advocacy from that sector, from the timber industry generally, has always been for uh, plantation timber's value as a low carbon renewable resource. It's really what that we've been uh, told for a very, very long time. And so, you know, I've when I visited this sawmill recently, it was having just seen Yost's film and seeing him wander through a plantation forest and showing the monoculture that was there and how that was not supporting any other wildlife and those kinds of things. And I was already knew Yost's views on plantation and FSC timber. And, uh, you know, I, but I, I was still of the view, I'll be frank with you, I was still of the view that just the sheer scale of the industry it simply relies on the timber supply chains that we currently have that I couldn't see how we could make make agroforestry work at scale in the way that the plantation timbers do. And and I, you know, had this belief that agroforestry is really great for one-offs and bespoke projects for well-connected people, but not for the average homeowner and the, you know, members of the undercover architect community. It was only though when I was there at this sawmill that uh, and I just saw the sheer volume of timber being processed through this sawmill and how much of it wasn't making it to being solid timber. You know, 50% of it was ending up as chip and sawdust and those kinds of things. And realising, like seeing all those logs and realising that I was 19 when those trees were planted, um, it's actually hard to describe, but something really shifted for me personally. And it certainly pushed me to explore more deeply because I really want to understand more about the varying views and the evidence and the options that exist and unpack a lot of that information that's out there in the industry. Now, whilst we walked around that sawmill, and they were doing everything like it was amazing. They were actually doing everything that they possibly could to extract as much uh, solid timber from each log as they can. And they were doing, you know, a lot of work in terms of the, the as I said, the sawdust was going back to that's what was firing the kiln. They were doing a lot in their energy and waste management and all of those kinds of things. Now, we did some maths uh, as we were walking around because I wanted to understand sort of in bulk kind of raw goods of that log sitting out in you know, before it entered the processing line, how many of those logs are actually used for the average Australian home? And so what we worked out, we could only work out obviously the stick timber um, and understanding sort of the stud framing of the average Australian house. We worked out that roughly between 150 and 200 logs, that's what it takes to generate the stick framing, the stud framing for the average Australian home. So that doesn't include any structural or finishing timber, the floors, the roof structure, anything like that, just the stud frame, 150 to 200 logs worth of timber. Now, however you slice and dice it, that is a huge amount of new resource to be consuming on a house by house basis, especially when it might only be used once and then demolished and have to go to landfill. And I think that 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 alone makes it worth questioning and asking if there are alternatives to this. Now, is it better that we're using a product that we can grow and regrow, even though it might take decades to grow it and it grows on land that's cleared and obtained for plantations? Or should we be using a product that's mined and processed and takes a lot of energy to produce, but it can be recycled over and over? Like this is where I'm still trying to arrive at my own resolution about things and I, I will keep you posted on what I find and uncover and discover in that journey of, of figuring that out for myself. 
In the next episode, I, I continue to talk with Yoast about agroforestry and we also talk more about steel framing so you can hear his points of view about it. And when we discuss um, another material that he loves, which is magnesium oxide board, we go through some of the building details. I really wanted to understand how the walls and the floors were actually constructed so they could provide thermal mass, they could manage condensation and how that all worked in the future food system. So Yoast goes into a lot of detail about that as well. And he also shares some great stories about how his tested materials and also his suggestions for you if you're wanting to adopt these ideas into your own project how to go about that so be sure to join me for that episode now remember you can access the free downloadable pdf transcript of this episode plus loads of links and resources and other information that i've included there by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 266 that's the numbers 266 As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.